Ani bojo mas kwa mamengo na dish na kaz mega zay na dorum wikung kong na dunjaba. Joseph Alex Shona ni jaganash na dish na kaz. Hello everybody. Uh, Joseph Alex Shona is my English name or what I'm called. My spirit name is Red Butterfly. I'm from the Eagle Clan and the Wukumakong First Nation. I currently live in Fort Erie. Personally, I've always kind of knew who like I was, and I've, like my sense of family has been like really, really big. And I've always kind of like knew I had a place in creation, and I knew where I belong. But growing up, it's like kind of finding that place because in our tradition, like we have our name is derivative of like. Jean, uh, and that's like the South, and he's like a teacher, and he gives people a second chance at life. And so for me, it's like finding my place in that, in that way. Okay. So I've always kind of like knew who I was. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclus and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve lake take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Who is and who isn't indigenous in your perspective, Joe? To me, uh, who is and who isn't indigenous is like a really big topic nowadays because it kind of challenges tradition that's been on that's been going on for generations and generations before Canada 150 before the settlers came across and now it's more prominent in today's society because really like nobody is fully indigenous and it's getting to a point where all this discussion on uh, like blood quantum and stuff and like how one person can be defined as indigenous due to that blood quantum but for me it's all about like how you feel and uh, if it feels right with you. But I feel like you'd have to have some indigenous ancestry period. Like, yeah. All right. No, that's, that's a great answer. Uh, for our listeners today, they, that's, that's not Sean sitting across from me. That's, that's Joe Alex Shawana. And he is an 18 year old youth that, has lived almost twice that time by his accumulated experience. He he's a drum keeper. He's an expert. He's a language speaker. And you also have a formal role, right, Joe? What's what's your what's your formal title now? My formal title is I am the Southeast Regional Board Representative on the Board of OFIFC. It's the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers. I'm that youth representative. Basically, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be traveling to all the native centers in my region and discussing why it's important to have a youth council and uh, like bringing light to that and conducting reports and gathering reports and bringing that to the actual board. So, yeah, it's that, really exciting. That sounds really awesome. That's <laughs> that's great. I'm I'm excited for it. I don't I don't think they could have picked a better person for for that role. So thank you. <laughs> did you did you get acclaimed or or was there more to it? Oh, there was more to it. I had to go against somebody. It was like it came down to a vote. Yeah. Um, and the lady who I had to go against, oh, she's great. Her name is Erin, and she's from Peterborough, and she's 24. Okay. The age limit to sit on the board of directors for Earl 5C is 25, and she's been trying for this position for like five years. Wow. Yes. Um, did you go negative? Did it, did it get where they're like Trump, like attack campaign ads and like, 
Just kidding. I'm sure everything was on the up and up. Right? I think so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, it was it was really nice. I thought it was kind of cute because uh, it was just like a compliment battle. It was like actually really the complete opposite because when I gave my speech on why I should be the perfect representative for this position, I at the end I was like, Aaron, she's a really great person. She's doing so much for her community. She's going to school, and then at the end of hers, she did the same thing for me. And it was kind of like uh, it put into perspective like how many people see what I do and how like great that it is and what I do for the people. Um, and like it, it just kind of like I don't know. It means more. Do you, do you feel that the competition that you had for the position was a reflection of indigenous leadership values? And are they different than non-indigenous leadership values? I think so. I think like uh, for indigenous leadership values, we have like, oh, you can't drink and you have to act a certain way when you're in public. And especially you have to act a certain way when you're around elders and when you're around youth. Um, but for non-indigenous leadership values, it's like, those morals of respect for others and respect for the environment that you're in, um, it's not there. And it's kind of like, it can be toxic at some points because um, it infects other people with the attitude and with the point of view that you're bringing, I think. Okay. I, I think that one of the things that I've seen is that um, taking it back to, to the issue of indigenous identity is that for the vast majority of my life, definitely my parents' lives and definitely my grandparents' lives, it really wasn't great or really good in many ways to be indigenous. Now, all of a sudden, you, you have the jo Joseph Boydens of the world that are, that are writing books and they're keynote speaking and they're going to, going to expensive conferences and staying in fancy hotels and, and driving nice cars, all, all as a result of their, of their indigeneity, right? Mm -hmm. So, so where, where does someone like a Joseph Boyden fit into indigenous identity politics? I feel like the Joseph Boyden link kind of persona is like kind of like our mainstream thing now we have to display ourselves to give us that self confidence that we are indigenous because most indigenous people nowadays don't engage with community or engage in that like role to be displayed for other people to see and i think that it's it's kind of important to like know who you are and to display yourself in that way so that you have confidence in yourself and that other people see that there's confidence within you um i've seen people struggle with that right because we're supposed to be uh, a humble people by mm -hmm. by all accounts and yet there's this pressure on us now to i mean capitalism is fundamentally competitive right like that's that's the whole nature of the way that western society works is if you have two individuals and they compete against one another then the cream rises to the top and you'll improve society whereas in we're we're a collectivist people right like we're cooperative and so that humility actually goes a long way and that understanding that that you're part of something bigger than yourself right go goes a long way mm -hmm. so uh where where does that fit into now though like you're you're now in a formal leadership role so where do you draw that line between well if i don't step forward and do this somebody who maybe isn't as good at doing it will step forward and do it right mm -hmm. so how does how does humility but then also the the willingness to lead when the opportunity presents itself how do you how do you balance those things for me, I balance those things. I ground myself whenever I can. I find things for me that 
personally make me connected with my community and my culture. For instance, like drumming and singing. I love to sing and I love to drum. I love to practice my language and I love to uh, even dance powwow or even sometimes uh, social dancing. And it's just little things like that that ground me. And it's like it makes me who I am to be in that leadership role. Yes, when I it's kind of scary to think that there would possibly be somebody in the same position as me who doesn't have the same morals as I and who doesn't like quite think of things that in the way that I think of it. But um, I think of it as like I'm in this role Uh, I have a responsibility to the people and now the region that I represent and I'm here and I'm going to give it my best shot. Like, so we talked, we talked a little bit about leadership and and how indigenous values tie into leadership. What about everyday people? I think, I think to give a little context to people that are listening to one dish, one mic, uh, Joe and I were, were having a a genuine conversation at, at the friendship center, the Fortier native friendship center Mm -hmm. where we both work and the conversation was pretty organic. And we were talking about the recent border crossing that, that happened. The Indian Defense League of America uh, holds a border crossing celebration every year on, on the third Saturday of July to celebrate the Jay Treaty rights that are recognized in the United States, but but not in Canada. Get your shit together, please, Trudeau, and just recognize that Jay Treaty finally. So, But they, they hold this border crossing every, every third Saturday. And we were having a conversation um, about actually Christian indigenous people. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it works for Anishinaabe people, but there are many Anguihome, uh, Haudenosaunee people that believe that once once you willingly agree to be baptized, then you effectively waive your traditional claim to. Mm-hmm. And that, that's different from, we've talked about the difference between between status cards and band cards and, or band council and, and all the sort of formal government government ways. But but we have people that, that believe in our way of, of belief that, that once you enlist in the army, once you vote in an election, once you get baptized at a church, that sort of as per the terms of the two row wampum, you've left the canoe and you're now in the ship and you're no longer mm-hmm. indigenous, according to according to our traditional <laughs> leadership. Is there anything like that in, in the Anishinaabe worldview or anything that you've heard of? For us, it's like, we um, we acknowledge that there's a different side and that's that Christian side and we really really try to like steer clear of it but most Anishinaabe people aren't like are my family the Shauna family um, um, I know some families Anishinaabe families who do go to church and they do actively participate in the Christian community and Honestly, I love them with all my heart and they're my family. They're my like indigenous like powwow family. Like I'm always going to love them. And uh, for their views and their perspectives, it kind of like puts into perspective my views and how I view the Catholic church and the Christian church. Um, for my family personally, I feel like um, sometimes that baptism at birth isn't like a choice that you can make personally. It's a choice sometimes made for you. And um, it's all about getting back from that if it is, if it's not your choice. Um, I feel like once you've participated in that, that kind of like church, it's just about focusing to get back to indigenous and to indigenous ways, back to decolonialism and back to our indigenous ways of life. 
So can you be a Christian and a traditional Anishinaabe person? I think it's like a... (laughs) I kind of like have this image in my head where it's like a priest and a manadu, uh, a spirit, like battling each other inside of people who are like that. And it's like they're fighting over control of who like runs the mind, who runs the spirit. And I feel like I think of like how hard that must be for those people to be conflicted in so many different ways that the Catholic Church deems that indigenous people that uh indigenous people aren't valid to even conduct their ways of life but the indigenous perspective is that everybody basically like basically everybody love everybody and there's like no ifs ands or buts about it okay um Hmm. yeah i mean i I had read in in uh as i've studied history that when when the jesuits first came to to both anishinaabe and and to haudenosaunee people they said okay let's we want to tell you about this guy we know his name is christ and he's pretty awesome and what i'd heard is the indigenous people were like yeah okay you know he sounds like a really really great guy you know like Mm -hmm. water to wine and walking on water and you know feeding poor people and and doing all these these wonderful really selfless acts like yeah he sounds like sounds like some of our our people that that we look up to and what i what i had heard was that everything was going hockey dory until they're like okay cool so you like christ okay so now that's it now you can you can only you can only like Christ. You mm-hmm. can only be Christian. You can only follow these teachings. Let's let's dust off this this book we have here, the Bible, and and let's have a look. Let's have a look at it, and let's only follow. Let's only follow these ways. And then when that started to happen, this would be around the 1600s. That's that's when a lot of the conflict started to happen. When mm-hmm. when many of the many of the traditional people were like, whoa, whoa, wait, hold, stop the train like that. That's not what we agreed to here. We, we brought you into our villages. Right. And, and in a lot of cases we fed you, we clothed you, we gave you our medicine and, and we let you tell your stories about this Christ individual. But then you said that, that this Christ guy was the be all or the end all. And we, we never signed up for that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that line in the sand was, was drawn kind of early and definitely by, by the Western settlers first, Mm-hmm. But now we still have these divides in in our communities. Like like I think I think in to to give a little context, right? I, my traditional community is Oneida of the Thames. I've I've spent a grand total of zero years living there, but that's that's still the postage stamp size parcel of land that the government says is is my traditional territory. And on Oneida of the Thames, there's eight churches, I believe, in a community of eighteen hundred mm-hmm. people. So there, uh, I mean, I, I walk a fine line, right? Because I'm not sure that Christian values and traditional indigenous values are in any way compatible. But then again, there are people that, that I've grown up with that, that I look up to and even close family members that, that I have that are, that are Christian, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a hard time reconciling that, that our hardline traditional views sometimes that, that if you're Christian, you aren't. That seems like that almost seems like the things that I'm rejecting about Christianity are the same things that some of our traditional people are are saying about the Christian indigenous people. Mm-hmm. For me and us, Ashaunas in our reservation, I think we only have like two churches on our whole reserve. And uh, like I said, there's still we still have our, like our family members who do believe in Christ and do follow the Catholic faith. And I love them to death. And. I always will, but it comes to a point where it's just like a battle of beliefs and it's not about whose belief is stronger. It's like about, it's all really like, 
I don't kind of want to generalize it, but it's kind of like the same concept. It's like there is a higher power. You have to respect him. Everything is connected. And there was a guy who had magical powers, basically. <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, for us, we had Nanabush. Uh, for the Christians, they had Jesus. Is basically the same. There's, and if you look around the world, there's many different like connections. Like uh, Anishinaabe people have the drum. In every form of culture around the world, they have a a drum to celebrate life in its essence. And there's many ties to all the different cultures in the world. But it comes to a point where, like, where is that valid? Where is it valid to say that this culture is the be all end all and you can't be indigenous anymore if you're this? And it was like imposed on us to be that. Like you said, it was just like, oh, this Jesus guy is great. And yo, you said you liked him. So here he is. Like, that's him now. Like, you can't be anything else. Yep. Um, I think that's that's really, really wrong. But uh, now it's all, I feel like most of the indigenous people now are Christian in the way that they are because of the residential school system. And I feel like they don't want to change their views because they're scared of what's going to happen because of the intergenerational trauma that did happen in those schools. Like... Um, like they were forced to basically be Christian. And when they got back, they're like, oh, I don't want my kids to like die in hell. So I'm going to teach them the Catholic faith and how to be good Christian people. But then it's like a conflict because it's basically forced on you. And that's basically what I think the Catholic religion is. It's like, it's like an inevitable cycle of force feeding christianity down your throats through generations and it all started for us indigenous people like you said through like columbus and everybody and it got more powerful in the residential school area era and like now uh like we have to change it's it's a really tough conflict that you've identified. I think, again, for for listeners that that don't know, that's that's not just a blanket attack on on the Catholic Church, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you look at the residential school system, there were there were four churches that that were involved: the the United Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Anglican Church, and the Catholic Church were the four church groups that that formally willingly agreed to voluntarily participate in the residential school system Mm -hmm. and for anybody that doesn't know the residential school system was was absolutely awful Mm -hmm. and that's that's a gross understatement of those four churches three of the churches have have formally apologized three of the churches in our own community right here in niagara have actively participated in projects like opening the doors to dialogue where Mm -hmm. they've come in and they've done beadwork with the communities and they've had open conversations saying like we really messed up and we know we have to make this right. And I'm not I'm not defending the three churches that apologized. And I'm not saying that they've done enough, but but at least they've made an effort. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church has as of yet to still issue a formal apology. And that's compounded by the fact that when Columbus first came and when you look what happened to indigenous people, especially south in the southern parts of, of Turtle Island, the the absolute racist atrocities mm-hmm. that were committed strictly because of 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 the fact that the indigenous people couldn't control 
how they were born or their belief system or any of that. The the absolute violence that, that happened over the course of centuries was perpetuated initially by the Catholic Church and then dominantly in the residential school system again again by the Catholic Church. So mm-hmm. so again I think that that it's it's not it's not attempting to, to single out any any one religion or to point the finger. But when when you look at the facts of history, I mean what's happened with the Catholic Church is bad enough in and of its own. And okay Fast forward to the fact that this 2017 and, and maybe the atrocities don't exist on, on that scale anymore, but without an apology, without a formal apology being being issued by the Pope, then what willingness is, is there to change? Mm-hmm. And even most of those systems still are active today, like uh, the foster care system. The idea of taking indigenous kids from their homes and putting them in a system is still really relevant today. And it scares me because I don't know what could happen when I leave for college to my brother and sister. And that absolutely terrifies me. Like, I don't know what would happen to any of my cousins. And it like it scares me because I want to do something about it. And I feel like we should do something about it. But the only way to do something about it is to get educated. Um, I heard a quote that education is the new buffalo. And I I think that's really, really like empowering because the buffalo were a main source of like life sustainability for many people across turtle island and now the only way to sustain yourself in this westernized society is to be educated and that's the only way to be any sort of valid in the eyes of the government or in the eyes of the western society it's definitely an important tool, and I, I think I may have even talked on this show about the history of, of the Docksteader family and how we sort of ended up in, in the Fort Erie Buffalo area was was that the my grandmother had already been to residential school, and word started to get out that they were going to start taking more kids kids from their homes. So um, given that option, then that's that's when my grandmother was, was one of the first Oneidas to actually move off of the Oneida Reservation and move into the cities which which again in and of itself in the 40s 50s and 60s would have been exposing her to a great level of risk this would have been all the way back in the 40s actually when, mm-hmm. when she moved to Fort Erie Buffalo there, there were no friendship centers right there were no community centers there were no real gathering places and I mean the world was was super and overtly racist at the time that that happened but in spite of all of that she did that because she believed in in the power of education right and and mm. that's something that again if if you look at our traditional teachers they've always emphasized that don't don't let it consume you and don't don't let yourself get wrapped up in the western way but do everything you can to get educated and to get that knowledge mm-hmm. and to understand where from a knowledge standpoint the western people are are coming from in terms of in terms of their their worldview so there is there is an important place for education. I think I think you and I both both agree strongly that, mm-hmm. that education, including almost all forms of Western education, as long as as long as they're not being colonial, as long as the textbooks are up to date, as long as they're resisting stereotypes, as long as they're they're using the the modern conventional thinking when it comes to indigenous people, that that all of those are our ways that, like you said, the new buffalo, right? Like a way that mm-hmm. we can feed ourselves and inform ourselves and feed our minds and nourish our souls and and move forward. All all those things are 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 definitely important. But there's also there's also the traditional knowledge. And I would say that, that any attempt to bring traditional knowledge into Western ed- ed institutions, including good institutions like like education, have as of yet to really be successful, right? Mm-hmm. So where do our people go? What happens when um, 
Uh, Bob Antone is is a very respected Oneida traditional person and academic, and he he gives a very good example in his PhD thesis where he talks about how how people come to the realization that they need to practice traditional indigenous values, and then they go to the traditional indigenous people. And they find another gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. They find someone there waiting at the gates of traditional knowledge, saying that no, no, you you can't access this. This isn't this isn't for you. Our family has had this for for several generations, and and we're not ready for you. And he says that thinking needs to stop. He says that, that it's it, you just you just if people are ready and they're willing and they want to take on that knowledge, that that you have to share that knowledge. It's mm-hmm. it's important because if we don't share it, we'll lose it. Yeah, I definitely think like. We, we agree that education is really important, <clears throat> but in the way of bringing indigenous, uh, like traditions to the modern edu- education system, I think like one of the schools doing that now is, uh, Lloyd S. King elementary on new credit. Um, they learn the language. They even have the students actively participate in ceremonies at the Kinoma Gegamig. That's like a healing center right across the street from the school. Like whole classes go and they participate in sweat lodges and ceremonies and moon ceremonies and very fast ceremonies. Wow. And that's actually incredible. Wow. But the I feel like the way to do that is to have that mindset, but bring them to public schools in Niagara. Okay. Now, the school you're talking about, though, it's indigenous-led, right? Like, is it the the, the administrators are indigenous? The, the principal's white. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. So... That I guess that's that's the thing right there is we uh, in in Oneida they have a traditional school. Uh, Tom, anybody who's looked at Tom Porter has famously heard of the Aquasasni Freedom School, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where they teach in the language, right, and everything is done in a traditional fashion. But there's always limits to funding. There's always limits to how far it can go. In the case of the Freedom School, my understanding is it's it's only for for elementary school, and then you get into secondary school, and, and they don't continue it, mm-hmm. right? There's um, there's a really big gap. Because when you go to high school, it's like a whole new thing. And that's what I've seen one of the problems with Lloyd S. King is that they're learning all this traditional knowledge and they're learning all these ceremonies. And when they get to high school, they just lose it. Wow. And like, they isolate themselves. And if they like try to engage with that, then like I guess it's kind of like shot down. And that really like saddens me. But there are definitely some hero stories that come from Lloyd S. King. Like my grandfather just showed me yesterday a student that he taught and she's now an indigenous model. Wow. And that's like incredible. That's incredible to think of the possibilities that can arise from this school and this idea that indigenous traditions can be implemented in today's Western society. But how to do that and how to access that knowledge and bring it here is still yet to be found. But I think I have an idea how to do it. Do you care to elaborate on how you have an idea to do how to do it? Well, we definitely, definitely need more indigenous teachers and indigenous people in the faculty, indigenous people making the curriculum so that it is indigenous based, right? Because if it's not indigenous based and for indigenous people, then really like, what are you trying to accomplish with indigenous studies? But then, I mean, that feeds back into the uh, sort of where this conversation started, who is and who isn't indigenous. Mm-hmm. What happens if you have an indigenous person that doesn't have a lot of traditional knowledge or connection to their culture? 
then where where do they fit into the scheme? And I I may have even heard, and I again I'm not I'm not going to name names or anything, but I've heard of cases where maybe somebody was put into a position uh, in a leadership position because they're indigenous, which is important, by the way. I'm I'm I I don't think that indigenous courses should be taught by non-indigenous people. Period. Yes, right? I agree. But then I also want to go further and say that I don't think that indigenous courses should be taught by indigenous people that don't actually know what the hell they're talking about. Oh, I 100 percent agree with students, you. right? I really but agree with you. How do we reconcile that then, right? Because we want to, on the one hand, we want to create opportunities for indigenous people, and mm-hmm. by putting them in those leadership roles, it's going to accelerate the learning process, and it's going to give them an opportunity to to actually lead and to learn and to catch up and to fill that gap that was created by centuries of racism, right? Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, if you have somebody that, that it's, you know, convenient to be Indian at the time. Yeah, it's like a big tokenization because it's like saying, oh, I'm indigenous, so I can teach indigenous studies. And I know the be all end all of what everything is to be indigenous. And that's really wrong. Like, I agree that there should be indigenous people inside the facilities, inside the schools teaching indigenous students, because personally for me and my high school career, yes, I did have an indigenous native studies teacher, but I felt singled out because I was indigenous. And that still shouldn't happen. What it was, was my teacher, he or she did not follow traditions (laughs) and they weren't a traditional person. They didn't actively participate even in their their local friendship center and they don't go to ceremonies they don't go to powwows so like it's not that doing those things validates you as as an indigenous person and that like ties it back to what we we're talking about but it's going to definitely like bring to light what your morals are and what you really value because my teacher he or she did not specify like oh i go to all this but he or she did like explain how important it was to do those things but they didn't do it themselves yep so it's kind of like a practice what you preach thing yep and um you really have to practice what you preach because if you don't then the students call you out on it because myself and some of the other indigenous students who did take the class They were like, oh, you don't attend the Friendship Center at all. Like, why (laughs) should should we do it, right? Yeah. And I, like, I laughed every single class because he or she would just be like, oh, this is about Indigenous peoples. We need to do this and we need to do this. And I said, but you're not doing it yourself. And you claim that you're an Indigenous person. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Pra- practice what you preach is, is an important part. And I think that, that that's where I landed on Joseph Boyden, right? When mm-hmm. when that whole debate was happening was, you know, is he or isn't he? It's First off, it's not for me to say that's that's between him and his maker, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what his identity is and what his lineage, lineage is. And, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm never going to be the blood quantum police. Right. That's that's not something I'm interested in, in doing. But but I was listening to Media Indigena, which is which is just a great podcast that's that's out there with rick harp and i i encourage everyone to listen to all of the one dish one mic podcast first 100 of them <laughs> listen to them all 
And then if you have time afterwards, then go and listen to Media Indigena. But but specifically when they when they were talking about Joseph Boyden, what they said is is for them the litmus test is what do you give back to your community? What what mm. has he done for for his people? What has he given to these communities that he's from? And even for me in our own community, like like one of the things I love about you, one of the things I love about your mom, Sabrina Shawana, who's awesome, is that the she's always giving back right like she's constantly giving and so for me that's that's living in an indigenous value system mm-hmm. is and, and that's an easy test you don't have to have blood quantums you don't have to have to have feathers you don't have and to i'd have even go as far as saying like that's what validates you as an indigenous person is giving back giving back to your community right because if you don't give back to community then like that that's like the main policy of not even like the main teaching of indigenous people whatever you learn in your life cycle you have to find a way to implement that back into your community so other people don't take as long or like other people have the same knowledge as you yep and understand what you did and how you did it but can further elaborate on it because they have a whole life to live and they experienced everything that you experienced because you shared what you did right and that's really really important Breaking news. You heard it here first on One Dish, One Mike. <laughs> Solving all of the world's problems. Niagara Catholic District School Board, uh, Niagara District School Board, Brock University, Niagara College, any other educational institutions that are that are out there. Hire, hire Indigenous people that give back to their yes. community and let them make the framework in your schools. Let them write the curriculum. Put them in, in the leadership roles. But that's that's the give litmus test. Give them freedom. Give them, yeah, give them the freedom to do it. But ask that question when you're looking for qualified indigenous candidates one of the questions that has to be on those tests is what are you giving back to the indigenous Mm -hmm. community right because we we don't need more indigenous uh indian affairs peoples driving corvettes into (laughs) northern communities trying to help with the suicide crisis right Right. like that's there's just something fundamentally wrong with that right it's messed up on on so many levels so i i think this has been been awesome and and super productive so i agree um the we we do have a tradition here on one dish one mic and what we like to do is we like to end every single episode with something called the traveling thought okay so in the same way that please please let me know if i'm if i'm butchering or bastardizing this but as as sean explains it there there's a tradition called the traveling song okay where you send people off with with good positive thoughts right and you send them away and it's the last thing you do right so Mm -hmm. what what sean and i like to do is we we both share a traveling thought something that we want to send away the the i think hundreds thousands millions of listeners to one dish one mic billions billions of listeners billions of indigenous people all across the, the land <laughs> across all of the galaxies listen right? to carl and sean <laughs> and now joe right yeah if, if you're indigenous to mars you can still listen to one dish one mic it's a red planet the red show's people. for you right <laughs> exactly <laughs> so on that note if there if there's one thing <clears throat> that in this awesome 30 minutes of of chatting that you think that our listeners could take away from from this episode what would that be what's your traveling thought today joe my traveling thought for today what do you what are you doing to give back to your community and how can you empower the youth in your community to do what's right in the indigenous mindset because with um in my experiences i've had to basically uh figure out for myself what I want 
and figure out for myself what's right and what's not and who to listen to and who not to listen to. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard. And for me as a youth still, uh, I just want to kind of like convey the message that the youth are our future. The youth are extremely important. Um, there will always, always, always be a chance for the youth to rise, but it's a matter up to the indigenous people now and the people in power now to give them that chance. And, uh, it's all about like what you believe and what you think and who do you want to listen to? Um, for me personally, uh, I still have a whole experience of college to go to and I have a whole new group of people to choose who to and who not to listen to. So I'll always be, uh, always be around and I'll always be willing to talk. Miigwech. Thank you. Well said. That's a Sean quote. I'm pretty proud of being able to quote Sean. So. My, uh, my traveling thought for the day is <clears throat> listen to Joe. Be like Joe. Be like the Shawanas, or at least the ones I know. Anyways, they're, all the ones I know are pretty cool. I don't yeah. know about the rest of them. All the ones on there. the res like cook their bannock weird and they have <laughs> oh different colored four-wheelers. <laughs> they painted themselves and it's just not that fun i'm just kidding love you guys all, all the more reason to be like joe <laughs> and i don't know if i agree with all those things you said <laughs> but uh yeah no uh all, all kidding aside support joe support the youth thank uh, you give give back to your community and understand that that uh keep it real mm-hmm. word 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 to big bird so on that note you're listening to one dish one mic on the niagara podcasters network right here in the garden city in st Catharines. yeah at co-work niagara has awesomely decided to support this fledgling podcast network as we make our way to billions of listeners so uh i've been here co-hosting my name's carl doxater i've been here with joe shauna Thanks for listening. Like, tweet, click on Facebook, Instagram us, Snapchat us. And, and share this. Share the hell so out of it. So it gets out. Nagiwa. Onigiwa. Bama pi. That means bye. Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderclis. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts.